I once was lost. Threshold two, becoming curious. I liked you and liked that you were different from most Christians, but I've never been interested in religious stuff, ever. It was a warm spring day in Colorado when I, Don, first met Matthew. Matthew was a student at the University of Colorado, a music major who was extraordinarily gifted and who had plenty of baggage regarding Christians. Matthew had heard me give a talk at a Christian service on campus, and a friend of his introduced us afterwards. Matthew wanted to get together and talk about some of his questions about Christians, so we started hanging out every couple weeks or so. At first, Matthew was pretty careful around me. He had so many frustrations with Christians, and since I, too, was a Christian, I could sense his guardedness. We would get together, he would vent his honest frustrations about Christians, and for the most part, I just agreed with him. I could have tried to defend our track record, but we Christians actually have done various insensitive and oppressive things over the years, so I didn't feel the need to defend right off the bat. My honest agreement surprised him, and over time, he started warming up. We would meet at a coffee shop or a bar and just talk about his frustrations, and in this way, slowly over time, Matthew crossed threshold one, and he trusted me. As we became friends, Matthew began asking me about my life. I talked honestly about what was going on. One day, as I was telling him about my family's upcoming summer move into Sun Valley, statistically one of the poorest, most dangerous neighborhoods in Denver, Matthew stopped me. He just didn't get it. Why would I take my pregnant wife and one-year-old son to live in Sun Valley? Well, Jesus taught that, I realize this may sound kind of crazy, but Jesus taught that the poor on this earth are blessed spiritually. They are in on some stuff that the rich may never quite grasp. In fact, Jesus said they were lucky. Matthew stared at me. Lucky? What are you talking about? Then we talked about how much time Jesus spent with the poor and how Jesus told his followers that when they care for the poor, they are really caring for him. We talked about Mother Teresa and what she said about why she went to be with the poor. And we talked. Matthew's eyes grew thoughtful. He had never known all this about Jesus. Having no interest in being with the poor himself, he was perplexed by my plans for the summer and how that was related to my following Jesus. Jesus' word was changing my life and revolutionizing my decisions. This was a parable to him that burned in his brain. Later in the same conversation, I asked Matthew if he had ever read much about Jesus himself. I thought back and realized that all our conversations had centered on Christians, their history, their culture, their habits. But Matthew had never really discussed Jesus. Matthew thought about it. He shook his head slowly and said, No, I guess I don't know much about Jesus. As this self-realization dawned, I told him about each of the Gospels and suggested he read the Gospel of Mark over the summer. That summer, even though Matthew was busy with an important internship over on the East Coast, he did read Mark. Then he read on to read all four of the Gospels. He found Jesus thrilling and couldn't read enough about him. Somewhere during our conversation, Matthew had crossed the second threshold. He moved from complacency to curiosity. It was a beautiful shift. Curiosity changes lives. Just because someone trusts you, it doesn't necessarily follow that they are super curious about Jesus. In fact, many non-Christians are content to have a Christian friend or two, but never get any closer to the kingdom. After coming to trust a Christian, they face a whole new threshold. The process of moving from complacent about Jesus to curious about him is the second major threshold our friends have told us they went through on their way to faith. To go from being complacent about spiritual things to being intrigued is a natural process. Our souls and our minds are built by God to be curious, to ask questions until we have landed upon satisfying answers. 
So this move from complacent to curious isn't easy. Complacency is easier, of course, but it taps into a desire and need that is wired into all people. Before crossing this threshold, our lost friends may seem apathetic to us, but to them it might feel more like contentment. It's all good. They don't want to make waves. They're just making life work, just getting by, and they're working at being tolerant. Whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. This is what they have taught since kindergarten. It is a bland view of the world, but it is a view they are accustomed to. Jesus would like to awaken them to technicolor view of life, but this can be a slow journey. Most folks don't go from being spiritually complacent to bursting with curiosity overnight. Curiosity tends to blossom over time. You can think of curiosity as having three levels of intensity. Awareness, engagement, and exchange. First comes awareness. Matthew had never thought about what might be good about moving into an urban neighborhood. Such thoughts had never crossed his mind before. He suddenly became aware of options he had never considered. His personal experience was no longer enough to allow him to understand the world. This propelled him to take a step out of his take on the world and ask questions. Awareness of more options, more paths in life, is often the first baby step out of complacency. As people hear about Jesus, their old answers and old pictures of God slowly become antiquated and inadequate. This awareness of a new and different reality is a first step. Just being aware of something new doesn't necessarily mean you are really, really curious, though. Engagement is a more intense flavor of curiosity. Matthew began to engage when he asked to hang out with Don. He took this personal engagement a step further when he began reading the Gospels on his own. Engaging with a real Christian, becoming friends with a Christian, and taking time to read through the life of Jesus were concrete actions that caused Matthew's curiosity to grow stronger over time. But we all know it's quite possible to show up at an event, but not really show up. Matthew engaged by reading the Gospel, but he also entered into exchange. This is an intense form of curiosity that means being so curious that you want to exchange ideas, ask questions, and offer your own opinions. This expression of curiosity is more than just cognitive activity. Matthew wasn't just quietly listening to what Don had to say. He was right there in the mix, showing his own opinions about Christianity and asking all sorts of questions. This type of give and take was important because Matthew was not just a passive hearer. He was actively involved in the topic And in this way, his curiosity continued to develop and grow. Given how wonderful it is to see someone grow curious about Jesus, is it possible to help our friends move there from the complacent place they are in now? What we have found is that the Spirit often uses regular folks to help people get across this significant threshold. Provoke curiosity. Jesus was a king of provoking curiosity in those around him. It's striking to watch Jesus along the roads and towns of Israel and draw great interest in crowds wherever he went. Much of this attention can be credited to his miraculous healing powers, of course. But we also see Jesus as he interacts with folks more intimately, doing simple things to intentionally stir them towards curiosity. Jesus knew what the crowds expected of him, and he often did the opposite. They wanted him to stay, and he went on to other towns. They wanted him to bash Rome, and he suggested they pay taxes. Jesus asked questions, told parables, did the most unexpected things. We can emulate Jesus by engaging in these simple actions ourselves. Doing so, we have found, is a great service to our friends who are stuck, impossibly stuck, it would seem, at threshold two. Number one, encourage questions. Jesus often asked questions of those around him. This seems normal, but when you consider that Jesus knew everything already, 
It makes you rethink why Jesus did ask so many questions. It seems Jesus asked questions not to elicit information from people, but rather to stir within them some thought or emotion. Jesus has asked 183 questions in the gospel. He answers just three of them. And he asks 307 questions back. As our friend Tom says, Jesus does not have Q&A sessions. He has Q&Q sessions. What do you want me to do for you? The guy's a paralytic, desperately living life on the off chance he'll be healed at the pool near him. Isn't it obvious to everyone what he wants? How do you read the law? This posed to an expert in the law who was mostly interested in taking shots at what Jesus had to say. Where is everyone? Has no one condemned you? This is to a woman caught in adultery after everyone had humbly walked away rather than stone her. Who do you say I am? Though he must have already known this. What are you looking for? They were looking for him, but he wanted them to look again at their desires. A seminary professor we know says, A good question is worth a thousand answers. Sometimes, when someone asks us a question, an answer is the last thing they need. Instead, they need someone to stoke the fire of curiosity in their soul. They need someone to awaken intrigue within them by giving them another question rather than a pat answer. One of the greatest acts of love we can give is to ask good questions and help our friends learn to ask more questions for themselves. We live in an age of too much information, too few good questions. Let's be the ones to ask the great questions. Spark curiosity wherever you go, just like Jesus. Let's be like Jesus. Let's ask intriguing questions that help our friends think about life from angles they have never considered. Number two, use parables. Jesus often told simple yet haunting stories to those around him. These parables were stories or images that stuck inside the minds of the hearers like fish hooks. Once stuck into someone, their seemingly innocent stories haunted. They begged further inquiry, further thought, further questions. In Mark 4, Jesus clarifies that what he loves most about parables is that they draw some people closer to him. They make people come closer for clarification. Many yawned at his parables, but some were perplexed, wanted to ask more, probe more, know more. In fact, those who probed his simple little parables, wanting to peer into their depths, had, in the words of Jesus, discovered the secret of the kingdom. Ask starter questions to encourage questioning. Learning to ask good questions can be awkward. We think that becoming better conversationalists should just happen naturally. Many people are offended by the idea that they might need training on how to ask questions, and being handed a good question to use in conversation feels trite. But we actually lead seminars on asking good questions. We are convinced that few skills are more pivotal for people who want to walk with their friends in the journey of faith. What questions do you tend to use as you help conversations move towards spiritual things? When training, I, Doug, suggests that everyone find a few comfortable questions that work for them. Look at the questions below and find a few that work for you. Don't score these questions just because they look simple or obvious. Try them out with a Christian friend until you are comfortable guiding a conversation deeper. Have you ever had a spiritual experience? Would you like to have one? Have you ever felt like you received a sign from God? What would you do if God gave you a sign? What is your take on this whole God question? What do you think God is like? Why do so many people hide behind religion? What do you think is wrong with Christians today? What do you think life is about? Do you think you have a destiny? Do you think that people are more spiritually interested today than they were five years ago? What is the most significant thing that has happened to you in the last month? 
You might be surprised how getting your mouth used to asking certain provocative questions will serve you later on when you're in a conversation. Getting better at asking questions is a way of serving our friends. These parables are short and memorable, and we still talk about them today. The story of a dad and his two sons. The story of a desperate widow and a mean judge. The image of a pearl, a hidden treasure, seeds being thrown onto soil. Jesus used these seemingly everyday images and stories to draw people closer to him, to arouse curiosity in those around him. Ultimately, they were genius teaching tools, of course, as he unpacked the deep, profound, earth-shattering messages they contained. But their initial purpose was to invite inquiry and curiosity. Not only would it behoove us to learn and use the parables of Jesus and all they contain, but we also could do a better job of noticing the parables all around us today. Jesus wasn't above using the everyday as a window to the spiritual. He used the sight of impressive temple walls and the recent news of a tower falling on some people to bring up spiritual realities in his conversations. Simple images and stories that can pull people into deeper questions are all around us today, too. We can find these modern-day parables in art, at the movies, in a sports arena, in the latest bestsellers, in the news, on our very own streets, and in the various hoses of technology that spray into our lives daily. Instead of waiting every couple years for an image or story that takes up Christian themes to dominate our cultural landscape, think The Passion of the Christ, The Da Vinci Code, etc., and then working ourselves into an evangelical frenzy to capitalize on this oh-so-obvious chance to talk with non-Christians about Jesus, We should practice the regular habit of noticing parables all around us and learning how to use them to provoke curiosity about Jesus. Mostly, this just means paying closer attention to the world. While driving to work, you hear a story on NPR about how being a permanent detainee in a prison without any hope of release destroys people's psyches. Hmm, without hope, the human soul gets destroyed. Sounds familiar. Perhaps I'll bring the report up in a lunchroom today and see where the conversation grows. Pay attention. Practice using parables. That'll go a long way in helping you provoke curiosity. Number three, live curiously. Jesus was surprising. It wasn't that he was going for cheap shocks. He just did things all the time that were countercultural and caused those around him to pause and stare and ask questions. The Pharisees were shocked and wanted to know why Jesus had touched the leper, why he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, why he was letting the prostitute cry all over his feet. The disciples wanted to know why Jesus kept provoking the authorities all the time, why he insisted on heading to Jerusalem when tensions were so high, why he allowed little kids to take up so much of his important time. This shows us a bit of why pointing to Jesus is so crucial in helping people become curious. See our next point about focusing on Jesus, but also gives us an example of how we can provoke more curiosity within our own lives. Matthew's curiosity got way dialed up when he saw that Don was going to go down to Sun Valley for the summer. This was a seemingly ridiculous, very surprising thing to do. Such kingdom-oriented, countercultural actions, when lived out in our daily lives, can help our friends cross this threshold into curiosity. The same is true of our words. Jesus always had an unexpected word for those who came to him. The marginalized expected to be treated like second-class citizens, but Jesus honored them and made them the focus of the crowd. The arrogant expected to be applauded by Jesus, but he exposed their folly and invited them to become lowly. Everyone had a preconceived notion of which box Jesus fit in, and Jesus stirred their curiosity by refusing to fit their assumptions about him. What do your co-workers think about you? 
How do they expect a nice Christian to say in various situations and conversations? Try saying unexpected and borderline outlandish things to stir curiosity. In the end, even if you are encouraging questions, using parables, and living curiously, it is important to remember that curiosity grows over time. Sometimes this threshold takes time. Hang in there with your friends. Often the soil can look barren and unworthy of the sweat and toil. But as we dig and help uncover their curiosity, we will find rich patches of ground for seeds to take root and sprout new life. Often you will find that provoking curiosity in others makes your life more interesting than it's been in a while. Doug My friend Crystal came over to my apartment rather discouraged. She had been trying to love and bond with non-Christians on campus all year. She joined them in their hobbies and activities. She accepted them. She enjoyed them. She prayed for them. She served them. But she was stuck. Their concept of her was that she was kind. They found a nice person box and fit her nicely in it. But they were not curious about her life, her God, or her faith. They felt no need to ask her questions because they had found a box to contain her. No curiosity. Crystal and I talked about how Jesus is provocative. He is intriguing, outlandish at times, adamantly refusing to fit into anyone's box. They get out the box with his name on it, and he kicks it down with his unexpected answers. They bring out their best either-or question, and he paves a third way they never considered. They are left speechless. I suggested that Crystal answer questions with a question, and if her friends were not asking questions, she could ask her own out loud. Sitting in people's dorm rooms, she began to ponder out loud, I wonder how many people are interested in spiritual things on this campus. How many people are ready to change their lives for something better? These questions burned in people's minds. As an African-American, she would add, People of color are looking for God on this campus. People of color pray. To white non-Christians, this was provocative, unexpected. How should they respond to her? They just looked at her, soaked it up, eyes wide open. She was making them aware of things they had never considered. She started inviting everyone in the dorm to go feed the homeless with her. She challenged them to open their closets and bring extra clothes to give away, opening up paths for them they had never considered. Crystal was doing a beautiful thing in their postmodern world. She was a catalyst of curiosity, and God was working through her to disrupt people's easy answers about life. Seeds were being planted. Practicing Christian community is also pivotal to living curiously. Like Crystal, there are some things you can do individually to intrigue, but there are many, many kingdom realities that are seen only through relationships and community. Let your friends watch you do life together with your small group and they will see forgiveness in action, reconciliation, people who speak the truth and love to each other, honoring one another with their words, healthy cross-gender relationships, care for the poor, the power of prayer. As you practice generosity and care for those in need in your church, bring your non-Christian friends with you. God's generosity is seen in your generous act. In Acts 2, Christians share their possessions in common with each other. Inspired by this, I, Doug, began loaning my car out to friends who wanted to borrow it. My non-Christian friends were curious and happy to get a car to drive. They asked questions because they saw our community living out our kingdom convictions together. Bring a box of donuts to work spontaneously. When coworkers ask why you did this, say something like, Oh, I've been thinking about you more often these days. I figured this could be a small way of showing it. Focus on Jesus and his kingdom. The goal at this threshold is not to expound a comprehensive, systematic theology, answering every little question your friends may or may not have. 
That's for when someone's actually seeking for answers. The point here is to help our friends become curious about Jesus, to help provoke an intrigue or an interest in this Jesus guy. As we point to Jesus, we are encouraging people to explore the best evangelists in history. By recounting your favorite Jesus story of the week, you are gently exposing your friends to the living word. When Matthew asked Don more about Jesus and the poor, Don didn't leap on the opportunity to expound the entire gospel and explain clearly what it would mean to become a Christian and asked Matthew if he, that very day, would like to pray the prayer. No. Don had a sense that Matthew was on a very different part of the journey and mostly needed to just become bothered or entranced by Jesus himself. If you ever feel stuck wondering what you could do to help a non-Christian friend grow, telling him or her your favorite stories about Jesus is almost always a great thing to do. Dowsing Curiosity As we have conversations with curious people, we should be sensitive to what level of interest they actually have. Tuvia Jareski, a friend who works with Jews for Jesus, asks a great question. Would you pour out a whole pitcher of water if all they are holding is a little Dixie cup? No, you would only pour out a few ounces. Tuvia is right. We need to give people what they ask for instead of pouring out everything we know about God the first time they display a Dixie cup's worth of curiosity. If they have just a thimble full of curiosity, we could actually douse that small curiosity by answering their small, limited question with 101 apologetic answers we've been waiting to use on someone. Try not to dump five gallons of answers on a six-ounce question. Try to assess your friend's curiosity and respond in kind. This approach is much more likely to result in the growth of their curiosity over time. Now the great thing is, Jesus is very intriguing. No need to try to spice him up. He's as spicy as they come. When folks these days see Jesus himself, rather than cliches or stereotypes about him, they tend to sit up and take notice. People are intrigued by how countercultural Jesus was, how he embraced the poor and marginalized, how he eviscerated religious hypocrites, and how natural and open he was to those who didn't fit in, the homeless, the prostitutes, the ostracized. They are intrigued by how little he beat around the bush and how often he got to the heart of a person. People are intrigued by his kingdom, by how focused it is on bringing light into the world, defending the defenseless, embracing the poor and hurting. People love hearing about Christians who move into slums to help set up micro-enterprises to empower the poor for the long haul. They love hearing about the international justice mission, that troop of Christian lawyers who give up corporate law and corporate paychecks to fight against sex slavery. People are intrigued by the mystery and spirituality and prayer of Jesus' kingdom, how centered it is on experiencing God today through His Spirit. People love hearing about the 24-7 prayer movement and stepping into one of these hip, artsy, non-church-looking basements to experience God. Dawn, when I was working on my first book, Jesus with Dirty Feet, a non-Christian friend of mine asked to read the manuscript. I gave it to him, and while it was lying on his coffee table, one of his roommates picked it up and read it. This guy, who picked it up, looked about as far from faith as you can imagine. Long ago, he had dispensed with all religions, especially Christianity, and he had a vibrant life as a militant vegan going. Yes, we have militant vegans in Boulder. How could someone be more cynical, more disinterested in Christianity? But he read the manuscript and had only one question for my friend. Did John get in trouble for writing this? It turned out that the Jesus he read about was so interesting, so provocative, so countercultural that he assumed I must have made it all up. He assumed Christians everywhere would be outraged that I had changed Jesus in that way. 
The thing is, that manuscript was just full of simple short stories from the Gospels. The best thing we can do for our friends at this place in their journey is point them to Jesus and his kingdom. Even though Matthew had all sorts of sophisticated-sounding apologetics questions for Don early on, what he really needed was to care about Jesus, to have his curiosity aroused. Even though we may want to press other agendas with our friends, it may be that shelving those other issues so that they can take a look at Jesus is a wise move. A friend at church came up to me, Doug, with a question. Three of my colleagues at work are gay or lesbian. They tell me I'm different from other Christians because I'm accepting. What should I say to them? I want to tell them that bringing up a daughter with two moms is dangerous. I want to ask them if they think it will negatively affect her development to not have a positive male figure in the home. My friend was torn between a desire to confront culture and a desire to engage the culture. She was stuck in the tension between being a bold prophet and a patient missionary. In the end, I told my friend that instead of pressing that one agenda, she should try to build interest in Jesus. For where her friends were on their journey, this was going to be the wisest move. Curiosity opens doors. When someone becomes curious about Jesus, it does not make them a Christian, and it does not mean that the hardest part of the journey is over. For many people, the upcoming threshold will be much more difficult, and they will need even more support and encouragement from the believers in their life. But moving from complacent to curious is a huge, significant threshold. It opens the door to Jesus. It gets folks staring at him. And what they think of him, after all, is the ultimate question. When the Spirit uses our efforts at provoking curiosity, when God chooses to quicken someone and draw their eyes to him, it opens the door to their relating with Jesus himself. And that is something to celebrate. When Matthew came back from his summer internship, having read the Gospels, he was not a believer. In fact, there was much left to his journey, a growing respect for Jesus and a deep frustration with Christians who didn't seem a lot like him. Struggling with Jesus' claims of divinity, a distaste for Christian subcultures, confusion about scripture, and a satisfied contentment with the status of his life, intermittent boredom, and even the occasional fistfight. But eventually, the next spring, his journey led to the Boulder Reservoir. It was an early morning, Easter Sunday, and the two of us, Don and Matthew, shivered next to each other in the brisk waters as he was baptized into the kingdom of God. As glorious as that morning was, we never would have gotten to that place in the journey if Matthew hadn't become curious about Jesus all those months before. It was an essential step on his path to Jesus and the cold, cold waters of the Boulder Reservoir. A common mistake, though, is for Christians to mistake someone's curiosity for either genuine openness or seeking. While moving from complacent to curious, people often investigate Jesus and his teachings, and they can ask quite provocative questions. For all intents and purposes, they appear quite interested. In their heart of hearts, however, they are not yet planning on making any real changes in their life. Curiosity should be celebrated as a step forward, not mistaken for something it's not.